would love to introduce our preacher this morning, Vanessa Williams. She is a dear friend of mine. And Vanessa graduated from Bethel Seminary with her MDiv, and she is moving across to New York City to continue her education and doing her doctoral studies. So this is the last Sunday she'll be with us for a while. So give your best and warmest Woodland Hills welcome to Miss Vanessa Williams. Brianna, that makes me almost want to like tear up a little bit. You can't make me cry before I start preaching. What are you trying to do to me? <laughs> anyway, hello everyone. It is so good to be here with all of you today. Um, for today, we have a fun story. We're going to be looking in the book of Genesis. And more specifically, we will be looking at chapters 25 through 33 in Genesis, which tell us about the turbulent relationship between two brothers, Jacob and Esau, the grandchildren of Abraham. But before we jump into the text, I want to start by talking with you guys about a very practical issue, and that is application. Application is when we read a story or a poem or a letter in the Bible, and at the end of it, we say to ourselves, what, is, what does this mean for my life? How does this speak into my situation? Those are application questions. And application questions are important questions because those kinds of questions can really allow room for some profound transformation as we prayerfully reflect on what we've read. But unfortunately, I think that sometimes our application method isn't always the best. Sometimes I think that many of us are inclined to treat the Bible when we get to application more like a fairy tale or like a comic book rather than the Word of God. Because you see, in fairy tales, you have these stories, right? You have stories of far-off places, daring sword fights, magic spells. You have dragons, and you have wicked witches, and heroes that save the day. And when I grew up, I loved fairy tales. In fact, my car is named Ariel after The Little Mermaid, because that movie is obviously awesome. So I'm really into it. I affirm fairy tales. But even more than fairy tales, when I was growing up, I loved stories of comic book heroes. So guys like Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, I was into it. In fact, when I was like 9 or 10 years old, I had this entire theory about why Batman should be considered the best hero. And he wasn't actually my favorite, but I felt that if you looked at all the facts objectively and considered those, the analysis requires us to just concede that Batman really is the best. He doesn't have to be our favorite, but he's the best. That was, that was nine-year-old Vanessa, so <laughs> I've never been particularly normal, clearly. Uh, <laughs> so that was me. So Batman wasn't my favorite. My favorite superheroes were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes! All right. There's some turtle power here. I like it. Okay, I know this, uh, this cartoon has had sort of a revival recently. I haven't watched any of the contemporary cartoons. I watched this show in the 90s, and it was awesome. For those of you who are unfamiliar, let me just sort of break it down for you. This is about these four regular turtles. They come from a pet store. Then they come into contact with some radioactive waste. And when this happens, they transform into these, like, teenagers, but they're still sort of turtles... But, like, now they can, like, stand up right, they speak English, they eat pizza, right? So, and they become ninjas because they're trained by Splinter, who used to be a human being, but now is a giant rat. And they live in the sewer together. So this is a very, very realistic kind of a story. <laughs> now, there are these bad guys in this show. 
they're just notorious dudes like Shredder, Kring, Bebop, Rock City. I mean, they're bad news, right? So they, they live in Dimension X in the Technodrome. And whenever they, you know, they come up with all these plans and they come into the city and they're always causing chaos, like bad news. Like, you don't want to run into these guys, you don't want to know them, and you definitely don't want to be like them. So they're always causing trouble, stealing things, kidnapping people. But the Ninja Turtles, they always come in and save the day because they're the heroes, they're the good guys, and they always do what's good, they always do what's right, and so they always win. That's how the story goes. Stories like these... Whether it's a fairy tale about a princess or a comic book about a superhero, these stories are really fun. They're fun because they can capture your imagination. They take you on adventures you'd never normally go on. So they're really great. The problem is, is that for some of us who grew up reading these stories or watching them on TV, some of us, we are inclined to then impose a sort of comic book or fairy tale lens over our interpretation and application of the Bible. So what I mean by that is, we will read a story, and at the end, when we're thinking about application, what does this mean for my life, I think a lot of us say, okay, well, who is the good guy? And then we'll choose individuals like Noah or David or Abraham, and we'll say, okay, my application point or my devotion for the day is, I need to be more like Abraham or like David or like Noah. Or we'll say, okay, who is the bad guy? And then we'll choose individuals like Cain or Saul, and we'll say, okay, my application or my devotion for the day is I have to avoid being like them because they're the bad guys. The problem is the Bible isn't a fairy tale. And so the characters in the Bible aren't 100% good or 100% bad. Individuals like Abraham and David, they're not always good. Individuals like Cain and Saul, they're not always bad. And so the problem comes in is that if we, if we treat the Bible as though we're full of good guys and bad guys, heroes and villains, then we, you know, if we sort of impose that on the Bible, we actually end up missing a lot of what the Bible is trying to communicate to us with its very messy characters and complicated situations. Because that's what the Bible is full of. It's full of real people like you and me who do both good and bad things like you and me, and who are trying to figure out life and relationships and faith in a very messy and complicated world. So what I want us to do today is look at two of the messiest and most complicated characters in the entire Bible, Jacob and Esau, and I named this sermon after them, calling it the true tale of two brothers. And this true tale of Jacob and Esau will help illustrate our fairy tale problem And it will also help us to think about a new or maybe a different way of approaching application with this story or any other stories that we encounter in the Bible. So that's what our plan is for today. So I'm going to say a prayer for us. Please pray with me. And then we're just going to dive right into the text. All right, Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for gathering us here. And God, we are here to hear something from you. So Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear from you. And God, I just yield this message to you. I just want to say whatever it is that you want to be heard. And so Lord, I just give this up to you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us here. It is all about you. And God, we thank you for that. Thank God that this is not about me and it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive into the text. 
I actually want to start by going back a little bit and talking about Abraham, just refreshing our memories on him. Because it's kind of hard to understand why Jacob and Esau are important in the Bible if we don't know about Abraham or if we sort of forget who he is in the Bible. And so you'll notice in your bulletin you have sort of a little a family tree that's just in there to help you. It looks like this. Um, and I just want that to be in there for you guys to reference because... I'm going to be talking about a lot of different characters, and if you didn't read Genesis like yesterday, you might forget who some of these characters are or what their relationship is to each other. So at any point, feel free to just sort of look at that and remind yourself. Um, If you're listening through the podcast or online, there should be a link on the website for you to be able to look at this and reference. And again, this is just a tool for you to use during the sermon. Okay, so Abraham and Genesis. You'll remember that back in Genesis, God starts a rescue mission, and it is a rescue mission to save the world from sin. And a major part of this rescue mission is implemented through a covenant that God makes with Abraham. Amongst many other things, God promises Abraham that even after Abraham dies, God's mission to save the world will continue on through Abraham's descendants. So that's Abraham's children, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on. God also promises that Abraham will have so many descendants that they will become a nation, the nation of Israel. And Israel will have this important role of living in covenantal relationship with God and of also drawing the rest of the world into relationship with God. So they are supposed to be proclaiming God's redeeming love, drawing more people in. So it's very, very important. So the short story is is that God is promising Abraham that Abraham's family is going to have a very critical role in God's rescue mission. Now, this is a pretty big deal. It's also a huge risk for God to take. Because if you think about it, God could have implemented a plan that didn't include working with human beings. And in a lot of ways, that actually would have been a lot easier. It's kind of like this. It's like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you before, but... Um, they're, like, imagine that you're in the kitchen, you're cooking dinner, and then your five-year-old child or brother or sister or neighbor comes up to you and says, hey, I want to help make dinner. And you know, as well as I do, that it would be a lot easier and a lot more efficient and a lot less messy uh, without the help of a five-year-old, right? But sometimes we say, hey, let's just get messy, let's just do it, and we let the five-year-old help make dinner. Well, in this story, we have God who would be the adult and people who are the five-year-olds and that they are partnering together, but not to make dinner, to save the world. And this all starts with Abraham. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they have a child named Isaac, a son, and God's promises to Abraham carry on to Isaac. And then Isaac, after he grows up, he marries someone named Rebekah. And then after they're married, Rebecca becomes pregnant with twins, twin boys. Now, when it's time for Rebecca to give birth, they still don't have names for the children yet. Um, in the Old Testament, they would wait until a child was born, and then they would pick a name that was descriptive either of the baby itself or of the circumstances surrounding the birth. So Rebecca is ready to give birth, and the first baby comes out, and that baby is all hairy, I mean fuzzy from head to toe, And so they take a look at this baby and they go, wow, well, let's name him Esau, which means hairy. So it's very creative. Let's just call him, like this kid's covered in hair, make it his name. There we go. 
Now, Esau, as the firstborn son, he has a very special, very important birthright. The birthright went to all firstborn sons in the Old Testament. And what the birthright was, basically, is it meant that that child would get a double inheritance. So he gets twice as much as any of his brothers. And it also meant that after the father died, that, that little boy, after he grew up, would become the leader of the family. Now, the leader of the family was a very important role to have because he was kind of like the CEO, CFO, board of directors for the whole family. And not just like him and his spouse and his kids, like him, his spouse, his kids, his cousins, his other brothers and sisters. He was making decisions for everybody. Big decisions. Like, where are we going to live? What religion are we going to believe in? How are we going to allocate our resources? Lots of big decisions. So if you had the birthright, that was a huge honor. That was a huge responsibility, and it was very, very valuable. And this fuzzy little munchkin, Esau, he has attained all those future rights and responsibilities in this moment by being born first. Now, the second baby, he starts to come out right after Esau. And what they notice is that the second baby, his little hand is grasping onto Esau's heel as he comes out. And so they say, okay, um, let's name the second baby Jacob, which means heel grasper. Equally creative. <laughs> so now, if some of you thought that you know Esau was a less than desirable name, or if that was a somewhat unfortunate choice, um, it, the case can be made that being called heel grasper would actually be less desirable. Because you see, in the Old Testament, if you called someone a heel grasper, what you were saying is you were saying that person is a trickster or that they're deceptive. A heel grasper is the kind of person who, when you're, you know, you're walking along, do, 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 as you do, um, that person would reach out and grab your heel and trip you. And so that could be used either like literally or metaphorically. So Jacob is literally holding on, grasping onto Esau's heel. But as we'll see later in the story, he becomes a metaphorical heel grasper because he ends up tricking and deceiving a number of people. So these, these are the children of Isaac and Rebekah, the grandchildren of Abraham, Esau the hairy one, and Jacob the trickster. Now, as these two grow up, they become just as different from each other as their names might suggest. Esau loved the outdoors. He loved just, you know, running around outside, doing whatever, getting really dirty. And as he grew up, he became a very skilled hunter. And his dad, Isaac, loved this. He was like, yeah, that's my boy. Hunt those animals. Because Isaac loved eating wild meat. He was like, yeah, bring home that wild game. It's delicious. So Esau would go out and hunt, and then Isaac would just, you know, savor whatever, whatever Esau brought back. So Esau was Isaac's favorite son. But Jacob was Rebekah's favorite son. It says that Jacob didn't really like going outside. He didn't like hunting. He wasn't really into that. It says that he was content to stay at home. And at home, he did things like he learned how to make clothes, and he knew how to cook. So he was fighting gender stereotypes even back then. And he was his mom's favorite. Now, there's one day when Jacob is at home, and he's cooking some red bean soup. So you sort of imagine him, you know, over some sort of like cooking pot, and mmm, oh, that tastes so good, and Jacob's just making it. And then Esau comes bursting in. Now, Esau has been outside for a long time, presumably many days, and he hasn't had anything to eat. So he just comes in, and he says, Jacob, give me some of that, that red stuff that you've made, for I'm hungry, and I am exhausted. Now, Jacob sees this as an opportunity to get something he wants as well. So Jacob says, okay, sure, yeah, I'll give you some food, 
but if I give you this, in exchange, I want you to sell me your birthright for the soup. Okay, ridiculous, right? Totally ridiculous. A birthright, double inheritance, leading the family for a bowl of soup? Like, the soup's not that good, I'm pretty sure, right? Totally ridiculous. That's like trading some sort of huge treasure for, like, a couple of pennies. Ridiculous. But Esau is impulsive. He has this sort of ambivalent attitude towards his birthright. And so instead of saying, no, that's ridiculous, I'm just going to go get food from somewhere else, Esau says, I'm so hungry right now, I could die. I don't care about my birthright, which is a long ways off. I want food right now. And Jacob says, fine, you can have it, but promise me, swear to me right now that you will give me your birthright in exchange for this. Swear an oath to me. And Esau says, fine, I swear it. Now give me some food. And Jacob does. And just like that, Jacob's soup for Esau's birthright. This one story tells us a lot about the character of these individuals. I mean, first of all, you have Esau, who is just impulsive. And he's sort of flippant and very capricious. And so he sells this very valuable birthright. But you also have Jacob, who, even though he knows that his brother is this way, Jacob should not be opportunistic. He should not take advantage of his brother's impulsive behavior and tendencies. Like, that was wrong also. So both of these characters already are showing themselves to be very selfish, very self-centered. Here's the big problem. These are the grandchildren of Abraham. These are the people who are supposed to be carrying on God's promise. They're supposed to be proclaiming to the world God's redeeming love. And they are selfish, self-centered, broken people. But the mischief doesn't end here. Farther along in the story, we find out that Isaac becomes very old. And he knows that he's close to death. Now here's the thing. In the Old Testament, when a father was going to die, he would give a blessing to each of his sons. And a blessing is basically like saying your last words to a person. It wasn't necessarily your last words, but it's a formal way of saying you know, different intentions and hopes for the person. Sometimes we see in the Bible that blessings include words of prophecy, but the important practical piece of the blessing was that it would have the distribution of the inheritance. So this is really important. So Isaac calls to Esau, you know, come here, son. Esau goes to him and says, yep. And Isaac says, look, I'm getting really old. I could die any day now. So here's, you know, it's about time for me to give you my blessing. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go outside, hunt some wild animals, and prepare the food for me just the way that I like it. Then after I have that meal... I will give you my blessing. Esau says, okay, and he goes off to go hunting. Now, Rebecca, the mom, overhears this conversation, and she knows that Esau's blessing is going to be a very special blessing because Esau is the oldest son. And she doesn't want that blessing, though, to go to Esau. She wants it to go to Jacob, her favorite son. So Rebecca goes to Jacob, and she says, Look, here's the deal. You know, your dad is about to give the blessing to Esau, but here's a plan for you to steal that blessing from him. What you should do is you should go out, kill a couple of goats from our flock, I'll prepare the food, then you bring it to Isaac. Isaac won't know whether it's you or Esau because he's practically blind now, so then you can get the blessing instead of Esau. Now Jacob thinks to himself, hmm, I do like this plan, I like this idea, but... He's thinking to himself, I'm a little concerned because Esau is really hairy. And what he thinks to himself is, you know, what if my dad reaches out and touches my arm or gives me a hug? 
He's going to feel that my skin is smooth, and he's going to know that I'm not Esau. And then he's going to be super mad when he figures out that I tried to trick him. He's like, oh, I don't want to go down that path. So he says, Mom, I don't think this is going to work out. Esau's super hairy. I don't think we can pull this off. Like, let's not do it. And Rebecca says, no, I've, I've got a plan for it. Don't worry about it. Just do as I tell you. And if Isaac figures it out, I'll take the blame for it. Whatever. Like, just go out and get those goats. So Jacob says, okay. He goes out and kills some goats. Rebecca prepares the food. And then Rebecca takes Esau's clothes and puts them on Jacob. And then she also takes the goat skins from the goats he killed. And she puts them on his arms and on his hands and around his neck. And then Jacob brings the meal to, to his dad, Isaac. And so he calls to his dad, who's laying down and resting, and says, Dad. And Isaac says, yeah, who is it? And Jacob says, well, it's me, Esau, your firstborn son. I've brought this food for you just as you asked, so now you can give me your blessing. Now Isaac, he might be blind, but he's not stupid. He's a little suspicious. He's like, wait, wait a minute. How did you get the food so fast? And Jacob goes, oh, well, the Lord your God helped me. Okay, yeah, that's bad. Like, that always makes me, like, cringe a little. It's like, come on, Jacob. If you're going to lie about it, you could at least leave God out of it, right? (laughs) Like, that's super bad. And, like, God totally knows what you're doing right now. Like, oh, bad news. But that's what Jacob does. So Jacob says, oh, you know, the Lord helped me out, so this isn't suspicious at all. Here's your meal. And Isaac's like, okay. Now, Isaac still, he's not sure. He's like, are you sure you're Esau? Jacob's like, yep, I'm definitely Esau. And so Isaac's like, the thing that gets him is he's like, the voice sounds like Jacob. So Isaac reaches out and he um, he touches Jacob's arms, which are covered with the goat hair. And he can smell Esau's clothes, which Jacob is wearing and which smell like the outdoors. And so Isaac says, well, you sound like Jacob but you're smelly and you're hairy as a goat. You must be Esau. (laughs) Poor Esau, right? It's like, this gets written down in the Bible, so now here we are thousands of years later, like, talking about it. It's like, oh, he'll never live it down. It's like, oh, poor Esau. But that's the way it goes down. And so um, Isaac gives Jacob the blessing that was intended for Esau. And then Jacob leaves immediately. And almost as soon as he leaves, Esau comes in. And Esau calls to his father and says, Father, you know, I'm here. I have your food for you. And Isaac's like, who are you? And Esau's like, it's, it's me, your son, Esau, your firstborn. I, I brought you the food just like you asked. Um, I'm here so that you can give me your blessing. And Isaac, when he hears Esau say this, he starts to tremble because he starts to realize what has just happened. And he's like, I'm sorry, Esau. There was someone in here before. I already gave your blessing to that person. I I don't know what to tell you. And Esau's like, wait, what? What what do you mean? No, 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 no. You, You couldn't have. Father, the blessing's for me. Bless me. What do you mean you gave it to someone else? And Isaac says, I'm sorry, but it seems that your brother has deceitfully taken your blessing from you. I don't know what to tell you. And Esau says, oh, isn't it right that he was named Jacob? He's deceived me twice now. First he took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. And he turns to Isaac, and he says, please, father, haven't you reserved anything for me? And Isaac says, no, I mean, I put Jacob in charge of you, in charge of the entire household. I gave him everything. Like, what else do I have to give? 
And Esau weeps and weeps and says, Father, you've got to have something for me. You've got to bless me. Don't you have any words for me at all? And Isaac says, well, okay, this is the best I can do. Here are my words for you. Esau, your brother is going to rule over you. But one day you will grow restless and you will be able to throw his burden off of you. That's my blessing for you. Not, not that great, right? So Esau is just furious. After this point, he hates Jacob. He hates him for how he's deceived him, tricked him, taken advantage of him. And so Esau begins to plot how he will kill Jacob. But Rebekah, she finds out about Esau's murderous intentions, and she warns Jacob. She says, you got to get out of here. So Jacob goes far, far away to live with some family in another region. And he's gone for many, many years, more than a decade. And while Jacob is out there, he gets married, twice actually. He has 11 children at this point, and he becomes very wealthy, mostly through livestock. So he's living pretty okay. But one day God says to him, you know what, Jacob, it's time to go back to your family. It's time now for you to return. Jacob's a little uncertain, because he's like, ugh, last time I was home, my brother wanted to kill me. So he's like, ugh, I'm not so sure about this. And so Jacob prays for, for protection from God. Jacob also sends messengers ahead of him to, um, to sort of greet Esau on, on Jacob's behalf and to try to sort of appease Esau before Jacob gets there. And then Jacob, you know, he packs up his things, his family, and they're all on their way on this very long journey. Now, while Jacob is still a long ways off, they see Esau in the distance, and Esau sees Jacob. And Esau starts running towards Jacob. And Jacob's like, uh-oh, like, bad news. <laughs> so Jacob starts, he bows to the ground, he says, I- I'm so sorry, like, please forgive me. You know, he's just saying whatever he can to try to make Esau stop. And Esau, he just keeps running, and he runs right to Jacob, and he gives him a huge hug. He embraces him, because Esau has forgiven Jacob. And they weep together, they introduce each other to each other's families, and these two brothers are finally united. That is where we will end our story for today. So now we need to think about how do we want to do our application? What does this story mean for our lives? I think it would be good for us to actually first start by talking about what would this story look like or what would our application look like if we started off by um, treating it sort of like a fairy tale or like a comic book and ask ourselves, okay, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? So starting with the good guys, who is our good guy? Well, some of us might think Jacob. We might have thought that before we even started the story. It's kind of like when you go to the store and you see a Superman comic book, you know before you open up to page one that Superman's going to be the hero. You just know it. Well, if you are a little bit more familiar with Genesis, you know that Jacob has a very important role in God's rescue mission. You know that the promises that were made to Abraham carry on through Jacob. You know that Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. You also might know that Jacob is actually an ancestor of Jesus. So Jacob is an all-around pretty important dude. And so given his status, we might assume before we even start reading that Jacob is going to be our hero. He must be. But then others of us here, we might think, no way. Jacob's not the hero. It's got to be Esau. Because Esau, he demonstrates the outrageous, lavish love of God when he runs to embrace and forgive Jacob. Like, that's crazy. Like, how much more Christ-like could you be? So some of us might think, no way, it's got to be him. And I don't know about you, but 
when I hear this story, it feels a little reminiscent of the story of the prodigal son. It reminds me of that father running to embrace his wayward son. Here we have Esau running to embrace and forgive the sinner. Like, that is powerful imagery. So some of us might say, no way. Esau is totally our good guy. Esau is our hero in the story. That's a possibility. But now we have to ask ourselves, okay, who, who's our bad guy? Well, it could easily be Jacob. I mean, Jacob takes advantage of his brother. He plots with his mom how to deceive his father, and he steals a blessing from his brother. So Jacob could quite easily be our bad guy. But so could Esau. I mean, if you think about Esau's character throughout the story, I mean, Esau is flippant. He's kind of an angry kind of a dude. He's impulsive. He's capricious. He doesn't think things through. And not only that, but at one point, he plots to commit murder. Like, that's pretty bad. Like, that's, that's not so great. Like, it's not exactly a rock star example of a good guy. Like, you wouldn't really want to tell your kids, hey, be more like Esau. Like, mm, probably not. Don't be more like Esau. Here's the thing. In this story, there isn't really a good guy or a bad guy. Nobody's 100% good or 100% bad. There isn't a hero or a villain. These are real people who do both good and bad things. So that begs the question, if this story just like every other story in the Bible, isn't about heroes and villains, isn't about good guys and bad guys. We have to ask ourselves, okay, what is this about? How do we do our application then? What I think we have to do is we have to think a little bit bigger. We need to think about the bigger picture of the Bible. We have to think about how this story, just like all other stories, fits into that larger scheme and those larger themes that are throughout the Bible. You see, because the Bible, and every story in the Bible, It's all about God and God's relationship to people. Every story. God and God's relationship to people. So when we encounter stories and we want to think about application and we want to dig a little bit deeper, we need to ask ourselves, what can this story tell me about God and God's relationship to people? So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about those two questions. So first, what can this story tell us about God? I think this story tells us that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Because you'll remember, God makes those huge promises to Abraham. And he says, these promises carry on to all of your descendants. This is going to carry on to your your children and your grandchildren and so on. Right? Huge promises. Huge promises where God's reputation and God's mission are on the line. So imagine for a moment that you are God in this story, this story of Jacob and Esau. And you see this promise go from Abraham to Isaac. And then all of a sudden, Jacob and Esau... The temperamental, self-centered twins show up. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, seriously? Like, these two? Like, my, my reputation, my mission is on the line with one of these guys? One of them has to carry on this promise? Seriously? I'd kind of be like, uh, I don't know. Maybe I made that promise too hastily. Or maybe I need to add some extra, like, stipulations and qualifications to this whole thing. Or at the very least, maybe I want to, like, wait until one of these two has proven themselves worthy of carrying on this promise, right? But I think I feel that way largely because I'm a human. And as humans, we often, or maybe not often, but occasionally, we make promises and then end up breaking them when circumstances changes or when unexpected things happen. My friend from college um, is a really good example of this. So I had this friend named Peter, and oh, one of the things you have to know about my college is that it's in the middle of nowhere, and that most of us did not have cars. And so if you wanted to go somewhere other than the library, you really needed a car. So Peter was one of the lucky few who had a car, and he told his roommate, Alan, 
Alan, you know, whenever you want to use this car, whenever you need to go into town to get something, if I don't need it, you can feel free to use it. That's great. So he makes this promise to Alan. This promise lasts about six weeks because here's what ends up happening. Alan would smoke when he was in the car, and so the car ended up smelling a lot like cigarettes, which Peter did not appreciate. And Alan would never fill out the gas tank, like ever. So a lot of times Peter would need to go somewhere and the gas would be almost empty. So Peter was just like, you know what, dude, this is not going to work anymore. I, like, this is ridiculous. And Alan said, well, I didn't know that I couldn't smoke in the car and I didn't know I had to fill it up with gas. And Peter was like, well, I assumed that you were responsible enough to just know those things. And responsible, in my mind, means that you don't smoke in the car and that you fill it up with gas. I assumed that when I made that promise and this, this just isn't going to work out. Can't do it anymore. If I were God in the story of Jacob and Esau, I'd want to break that promise to Abraham for similar reasons. I'd say, you know what? I assumed that these people were going to live up to certain basic expectations, certain basic standards, and they're not. So this just isn't going to work out. But God doesn't break his promise. God keeps that promise. And because God, he sees the people and he sees their sin. And he looks at sin and he says, I don't like that, but I can work with that person. So God keeps his promise. And I think this is really important for us to know as Christians. Because God has made a number of promises to us, both individually and collectively. God has promised that his love will never fail. He promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. God has promised that this is not the end of the story, that he will make all things new. Those are huge promises. Huge promises. And I think it's natural and normal for some of us to sometimes wonder, what if God doesn't keep that promise? What, or what if I do something that disqualifies me from the love of God? I think it's natural and normal for us to wonder those things and to desire a sense of assurance because as people, we have all experienced a time where either we broke a promise or someone broke a promise to us, just like Peter and Alan. And so sometimes we project those experiences onto God and we say, well, what if God does this? So stories like the one that we read today should serve as an encouragement to us to remind us that our God is a God who keeps his promises. Because if there was ever a time when God would want to break a promise, it'd be when Jacob and Esau showed up. But he doesn't. God does not break his promises. God does not leverage his promises on our good behavior or on anything else. When God says he promises something, he means it. And there's not some sort of stipulations or qualifications or something else that he's going to leverage it on. We need to know that. So God keeps his promises. This is closely related to actually our second question, which is what does the story tell us about God's relationship to people? I think the story tells us that in God's relationship to people, God works with people where they are. You'll have noticed in our story that there was kind of a tension between the relationship between God and people because God is good and God desires good things for his people and he wants us to do what's right. But people don't always do what's right. We do bad things also. We do good things and bad things. There's kind of a mixture there. But God doesn't, um, he doesn't say, well, you need to clean up your act and then, and then I'll work with you. God doesn't say that to Jacob or Esau or anyone else in the Bible. God is ready and willing and able to meet us right where we are. And the cool thing about God is that God doesn't just leave us where we are either. He never leaves us to wallow in our sins. He meets us where we are and he says, hey, come with me. Let's go do incredible things together. I want you just as you are and let's go on this journey of transformation. 
And that's good news. It's good news because I think all of us know about a time or maybe several times where we have struggled with sin or different challenges. I think that most of us have certain things in our life that seem to get us over and over again. And I can share with you guys openly that one of the things that I have struggled with consistently throughout my life is jealousy. So I, I get super jealous when people have different skills or abilities that I don't have. I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that too. And sometimes it's just like admiration. I'm just like, wow, I can't believe you can do that. But sometimes I can get really, really jealous of other people. And actually, when I was um, thinking about this sermon and reflecting on some of my jealousy, what it reminded me of is this, um, there's this villain in this TV show. I don't know if you guys remember it. It was called Heroes. It came out in 2006 just kind of a while ago. But in the story Heroes, there are all these regular people who suddenly have superpowers. And it's really, really neat. They can do all kinds of stuff. But then there's this villain, Siler. And Siler is really jealous because he wants to be special and he wants to have these skills and abilities, but he doesn't have any. But Siler figures out this way to actually steal other people's superpowers and super abilities. And it's kind of gross, but what he does is he just basically steals people's brains. And that's how he, like, gets their powers. And so he gathers up all these different powers. Like, he gets, like, super good hearing. And he gets, like, the ability to see the future. And he can move objects with his mind. But no matter how many skills and abilities he acquires, he's always still jealous. He always wants more. And so he goes on and on and taking from different people. And so if I were a supervillain, which I am not, (laughs) just to be clear... I would totally be like Siler. I would be so jealous. I'd be like, all these people got these superpowers and I didn't. Got to figure out a way to get them. Taking those brains. Like, that would just be me, right? (laughs) But I'm not a supervillain. I'm not all good or all bad. I'm just another imperfect person who struggles with sin, who's on this weird journey of life with God. And so my sin, my jealousy issues, my problems, those aren't enough to overwhelm or to stop God from meeting me where I am and working with me where I am. And that's true for all of us, right? It's true for all of us. And we saw that in our story today, too. So this story teaches us that God works with people where they are. Now, I think that in light of these things, that God works with us where we are and that God keeps, our prom- keeps his promises, um, I think that in light of those things, we can see today's story as an invitation. And I think it's an invitation because of this. I think it's really easy for us to count ourselves out of God's kingdom work. It's easy for us to sort of beat ourselves up or say, like, I'm not worthy or I've got to get my act together. I've got to clean myself up before God's willing to do something with me. And it's easy for us to look at the characters in the Bible and just assume that they're these good guys, that they're these heroes, and that that, that's the reason for why God worked with them. But we saw that's not true. Instead, what we saw was that God took Esau... This guy who's angry, he's impulsive, he's capricious, he's ambivalent. God takes him and transforms him into this incredible man of forgiveness. And God gives Esau one of the most inspiring stories of forgiveness in the entire Bible. That is incredible. And God takes Jacob, this guy who lies, he's deceptive, he's only looking out for himself. God takes Jacob, he meets him right where he is, and God uses Jacob to carry on the promises of Abraham. God uses Jacob to be the leader of Israel and for his sons to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob becomes the ancestor of Jesus. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's amazing. And so here's my thought for you guys. If God can do that with Jacob and Esau, 
If God was willing and able to work with Jacob and Esau, if he kept his promises to Abraham, if he worked with these people where they were and didn't expect them to meet some sort of standard before he could reach out to them, then I know, I am absolutely confident that God is willing and able and excited to work with you and me just as we are and to do incredible things. Amen? All right, I'm going to close this out with a word of prayer. I'd like to invite the prayer teams to come up. If you have any need whatsoever for prayer, please come up after the service and pray with one of these people. They would love to do that for you. And I will say a prayer for us as we head out. Lord, I just thank you so much for today. I thank you for this time that we got to spend just learning more about you and talking about your word and talking about who you are. And God, we are so grateful for who you are because God, you are good You are so good and you love us. And so, God, I pray that you would just right now break any chains that we have on us that make us think that you don't want to have anything to do with us or that make us think that we've disqualified ourselves from your love. God, just break those chains and let us just jump into that invitation you have for us to just live life with you as we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.